at the beginning of the worship guide are some words from John Calvin. Too many of us, I think, have seen the uh, woodcut portraits and uh, ink drawings of Calvin's visage in the uh, manner of the day, and uh, he looks a little stiff and, uh, and tough and, and cold and uh, has not gotten the reputation that he deserved. Uh, as a pastor of pastors, uh, as a man who trained pastors uh, whose life expectancy was less than a year as they went back into France uh, to preach the gospel. And the spies followed them back sometimes to Geneva and killed them in their beds next to their wives in the middle of the night. And the new widows would come to Calvin's study in the middle of the night to weep uh, with him over the glory and grace uh, of the gospel. Uh, what wonderful words are in your bulletin. Holiness is not a merit by which we can attain communion with God, but a gift of Christ, which enables us to cling to him, to follow him. In the end of the passage from Hebrews that we read, uh, it's also in the bulletin, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that eagerly waiting for him is the gift of holiness, a new devotion of the heart that comes with the gospel. As we pray and come to Peter's words, I think you will see uh, that Peter understood what the writer of Hebrews wrote, and John Calvin uh, understood both Hebrews and Peter. Let's pray. Father, how rich are your ways. How practical is your word. Would you open our hearts and minds and stir the new devotion you've put into us uh, if we've begun to trust you and open all of our eyes that we might see you we pray in jesus name amen would encourage you as we are in uh, this series on the true grace of god in first peter uh, to go back during the week and read from the beginning of the letter to the text that we're going to read that week. I'm not going to take the time to do that each week, but uh, it is so tightly knit together as Peter builds and reinforces these core concepts. And if you've been with us uh, the last two Sundays as we talked about this grace and this salvation, thus Peter in chapter 1 in verse 10 says concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. A core admonition, set your hope fully on the grace of God. The grace of God that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Christ. He's already in the first coming been revealed, but Peter is pointing to the full revelation and the full deliverance of all of our salvation. And we see in verses 10 through 12 that prophets and angels longingly looked toward the good news of Christ's sufferings and glory that's now been announced to you. The Old Testament prophets, and I think Peter in these beginning verses of the section as I've divided it up, uh, is showing the Jewish believers that are there in Asia Minor and the Gentile believers that this trust and hope that they have is not something that's brand new with them. But it is what the Old Testament prophets were searching to understand. They were given the words, the very words of God to write down. But they were trying to understand who is this for? What season of time in God's redemption is this all about? Uh, And even the angels that the Scripture uh, says are ministering spirits uh, to God's people with the prophets uh, struggled with some of this that the prophets were writing down because uh, they were looking for the glorious anointed one of God to come and fully bring in the kingdom of God. Uh, But they were like we are. Uh, When we want the anointed one to come, we want him to fix everything and fix it now. And what is this stuff in Isaiah and other places about the anointed one suffering. What? And the angels are going, how how is redemption brought about by God's anointed one suffering? Uh, That's not what King David's life was about. It was about victories and expanding the borders of the kingdom to the biggest uh, that they had ever been. And Uh, If David suffered, it was most often through his own failures and the discipline of God. We read from Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, uh, if your father loves you, 
Uh, He's straightening you out along the way, correcting you as the Word of God is ours for correction and and reproof as well as training uh, in righteousness. So concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, Peter writes, they searched, they inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Did you notice that? Peter is saying that the Spirit who is leading the Old Testament prophets is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the eternal Son of God by the Holy Spirit guiding them. This is not something new. Christ Himself eternally before the Incarnation, the eternal Son before He took on flesh by the Spirit of God, was leading the people of God along. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. So the Spirit of Christ was leading these Old Testament prophets as they sought to understand the promised new covenant grace that's there in Jeremiah and so many other places in Ezekiel uh, as it talks about the new hearts and the new flesh, the new life that will be poured out into God's people in a future time. Wonderful hope they were given of what would one day be for their hearers. For Peter's hearers, this reality uh, confirms that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. As some of the Jewish people who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah were rebuking those who had begun to believe in Him, uh, imagine hearing Peter the Apostle's words uh, that this is what was said in the Old Testament. You aren't leaving something, you're moving on into the fulfillment of it. And imagine the Gentiles who are hearing this for the first time, that this isn't something brand new that somebody came up with, uh, with golden tablets that they found. In fact, even the golden tablets, about 75% of the Mormon documents uh, are in uh, direct quotations rearranged from the King James Bible. Even they wanted it to have some roots that came before. Uh, That is the nature of things. And this is indeed the Spirit of Christ ministering to the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets, in hearing of Messiah's sufferings, wondered what kind of season this unexpected thing would take place in. And it gave solace to New Testament believers shocked by Jesus' crucifixion. The prophets searched the Scriptures for understanding and leaned on the Spirit of God for illumination. And we are not prophets or apostles, uh, but surely we ought to study First Peter and the rest of the Scriptures, uh, leaning on the illumination of the Spirit of God to show us how all of these things fit together that we've been reading about and singing about in our service this morning. And both the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories that would be given God incarnate were prophesied. Hope in the right things is what is most necessary. In this passage, we are taught to put our hope in the truth and to put our hope in what God alone can do and has made known. This part of the Old Testament truth about the sufferings of Messiah must not be neglected. And it is what angels long to look into, the amazing suffering Savior and His salvation How can it be that the God who created everything, who is holy and perfect, uh, should redeem His people by His own suffering? What kind of new reality is this? The angels 
were trying to understand. And they were serving those who would believe the good news through what the Holy Spirit from heaven anointed apostles would preach. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. That's the unexpected element. Uh, The angels rejoice over one sinner who repents, and it's because of this truth that they longed to look into and then saw how important the Lord God incarnate taking on flesh and bearing the wrath of God for our sins is. Uh, If you want to understand how important uh, the message of the cross is to the gospel, there are many places to go, but I would urge you in your own study to uh, reread several times 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. And then begin to ask yourself and make it a part of how you evaluate Christian books that you read and you evaluate the lyrics to songs. Does it avoid the, do they avoid the cross? Because what the angels longed to look into was how in the world is a cross at the heart of redemption? It's the sharing of believers in these sufferings and the glories that then came to Christ. Paul talks about it so often. Peter has it at the heart of his book and even goes on, and we'll see it in future weeks, uh, that it should not be surprising that those who share in Jesus' death, we are co-crucified with him, Paul tells us, and will also share in his resurrection are also those who will share in his suffering because he is the way and the truth and the life. And so a lot of what Peter's going to be teaching us uh, is how our sufferings, they don't add to the worth of Jesus' sufferings, but they are a pathway for getting people to see Jesus more clearly and to see his sufferings as we deal with ours in a way that's different from the world because of the hope that is ours. The resulting praise and glory and honor will be ours too. So verses 1 through 9 that we studied in previous weeks set out a glorious introduction to our salvation in Christ, both a greeting in verses 1 1 and 2, but also the Trinitarian, God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, all involved in the core of our salvation. Verses 10 and 12 tie the reality of Peter's listeners to the Old Testament prophets and saints. Verse 13 then follows the patterns of many of the epistles which also begin with declarations of God's truth and of God's actions. And then out of the declarations, there's a therefore. Think Romans 12, after all of the teaching in Romans 1 through 11. Uh, We therefore are to do this. And so that's where Peter takes us in verse 13. Therefore, with sober minds prepared for action, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds, uh, your loins. Uh, It's the picture of the Roman soldier who has the belt in which he can take the lower part of his garments and wrap it up into the belt so that he doesn't trip when he's got to run carrying all of his equipment. Uh, It's it's be ready, be positioned in uh, the way that you dress yourself. And Peter is saying in this sense, dress your thinking. Learn to think gospel thinking. Learn to be a theologian of the cross, that you process your understanding of life in Christ through 
the cross which is at the heart of everything. And be sober-minded, self-controlled, not drunk with false ideas and false inheritances, but be focused on the hope and the future that is yours in new life in Christ that Peter has already talked about. So as obedient children, uh, don't be conformed, verse 14, uh, to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And I've said it to you before, I think I alluded to it uh, in the introduction this morning, Holiness, while it deals with morality and the laws and instruction of God, at its essence, it's the holiness of a new heart that is the gift of God in a new life that makes us devoted to the person of Christ. And the inheritance that we're devoted to is the inheritance that is ours in Christ. Uh, Which inheritance uh, do you live for? Wise parents often Uh, don't tell their kids, even when adults, much about their financial estate. As a pastor, I don't even want to think about the messes I've been in the middle of with families. As instead of longing for the inheritance that is ours in Christ, people are longing about who's going to get what. And I've been with divided families at funerals where instead of giving thanks for the life and the grace of God in their lives and in the life of the one uh, who could have been better and could have been worse, people were thinking about the inheritance, the earthly inheritance. That's what Peter's, he's being very practical here when he says be sober-minded and to set your mind, gird up your loins of your thinking in this kind of way. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Because you've been ransomed, verse 18, he will say, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And our tendency is to want to make things in the world right without the cross. And that's why I urge you to be what Luther called a theologian of the cross. It's not just a theology of the cross, we need that too, but to be theologians who interpret Scripture as we read it and interpret life by looking at the cross. Uh, When we become theologians of glory, we become uh, distorters of the Scripture, thinking we can have it all now. And and the church, you know, runs into that trouble, doesn't it? We have the doctrines of uh, we can have all health right now. I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma for 12 years, the word of faith capital of the world. I had people leave my church go to a Word of Faith church, and then come back from the Word of Faith church when they were told after several years the reason they still had so much trouble and didn't get healed is they didn't have enough faith. I remember one of our elders' wives telling me that a neighbor of 10 years finally came to her one day, and she said, can we talk? You're the only Christian in town I know that I can be honest with about my troubles. Because if I bring them up in my fellowship, I'm beat up on for my lack of faith. And then there's the doctrine of perfect love, that we can have perfect sanctification and perfect love in in this life. And uh, it's interesting that John Wesley, the source of some of that teaching, never claimed to have arrived. He was a lot wiser and much more of a theologian of the cross. Uh, If somebody tells you that, ask if you can talk to their roommate or their spouse or their kids. 
and you'll probably get some different testimonies than having arrived at perfect devotion and perfect love. We have a holy impartial Father who's given us the gift of new devotion and new life. Conduct yourselves, verse 17. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Uh, why fear? Because God is worthy uh, of us to bow before Him, both because we know that even though we have the acceptance of the grace of God in the cross, uh, there is discipline. We don't escape the discipline. In fact, it's a good thing, the Scripture takes us, tells us, but that doesn't mean we want more of it. <laughs> but we will receive some of that along the way. Uh, we are at times receiving that, but we also live with fear because we know that, as I think I quoted Luther once before, he said, that God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. You don't earn anything with God, but when you live out the reality of the gospel and the new life, when you deal with your sufferings, as Peter will teach us differently, uh, you preach the gospel to your neighbors about the reason for the hope that is in you in spite of your circumstances, 1 Peter 3.15. Being born again with this amazing new life and inheritance, we become theologians of the cross, not of glory, which is always the temptation of the flesh. Great pressure exists to uh, always, Peter's day, our day, to be conformed to the world which will claim that your standards as Christians uh, are cultural, that they're patriarchal or human-shaped God, uh, that you've made it all up without facing what happens when we move, remove from life the instructions of the real God. Uh, started uh, a new book this week, I mentioned to you, uh, a uh, recent new author in recent years, Rebecca McLaughlin, who's worked with the Veritas Forum with Christian faculty around the world, and she came out with a short book in 2021 entitled The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. And I want to read you briefly uh, some words from her introduction. The book begins, uh, what does that mean? And she says, my eight-year-old held a bracelet she'd found at school. Stamped on its rim were three words, love is love. And she notes that across our neighborhood, and uh, particularly in Mary Nell, my neighborhood in uh, Nashville, uh, we saw these kinds of signs. Maybe some of you have them uh, in your neighborhood. Uh, and the sign says, uh, in this house we believe that black lives matter, love is love, Women's rights are human rights. We are all immigrants. Diversity makes us stronger. Rebecca says, signs like this sketch out a secular creed or statement of belief. It centers not on God, but on diversity, equality, and everybody's right to be themselves. Seeing signs like this, Christians tend to grab hammers. I love that phrase. Some grab one to drive the sign into their own lawn. They lament racial injustice. They believe in diversity. They know that women are equal to men. And they've been taught that affirming gay relationships, trans identities, and pro-choice positions comes part and parcel with these other things. If black lives matter, which they surely do, she says, then love of all kinds must be love. Others take up 
hammers with a different plan. Knowing that the Bible rejects some things that underlie this modern creed, they swing a hammer to flatten the sign. Perhaps not literally, but in their hearts and minds. If these ideas stand together, they must all be wrong. This book will offer a third approach, wielding a marker instead of a mallet. It will consider five contemporary claims, examining each claim, and I'm editing, uh, through the lens of Scripture and in the light of culture, will aim to disentangle ideas Christians can and must affirm from ideas Christians cannot and must not embrace. But to wield the marker well, we must get down on our knees. First, we must recognize that the tangling of ideas in the secular creed has been driven not only by sin in the world out there, but also by sin in the church here. We must fall on our knees and repent. The frequent failure of Christians to meet biblical ideals of fellowship across racial difference. Before I finish that sentence, I want to back up, and I didn't ask Mary Nell's permission, but I don't think I need it on this one. Um, about the time the PCA was being formed, don't try to figure out our ages from this, um, Mary Nell was working on the high school staff of crew. And she was sent to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, attending Briarwood Presbyterian, where uh, our blessed brother, Frank Barker, just died uh, just a, a month or so ago, the founder of that church where the organization meeting of the PCA was held. Uh, and Marinelle got assigned as a single staff woman, sometimes crew's a little crazy, we have some crew people here that know that. Uh, as a single woman, she got... Uh, uh, assigned to Woodlawn High School. Some of you may have seen the movie about the revival in the football team. Uh, that was while she was there. And unlike, sadly, unlike many PCA churches, Marinelle arranged taking a carload or sometimes more of the black students from Woodlawn High School who wanted a church where the word was taught straight to Briarwood Presbyterian Church uh, in about 1972. Carloads of black students. I wish I could say all PCA churches would have been happy. Thankfully, Browerwood was. And those carloads of students who wanted the Bible and got it from Frank Barker uh, also sang in the choir with her and went to overnight choir retreats and were loved on by people who loved the gospel more than earthly inheritances. Last year, I was listening to an interview from my friend Sandy Wilson with a, a black PCA pastor in Birmingham, doing a wonderful ministry there, and he told a story that was in the same decade as Marinell was at Woodlawn, of being about 10 or 12 when the sheriff came to their town just outside Birmingham and put his young teenage brother, older brother, in the back of a pickup truck in the front yard, put a noose around his neck, and three times backed the pickup truck or moved the pickup truck out from under the noose and then backed it up again so he could catch his feet, all to get him to try to tell them the truth about what his older teenage brother, where he was that they were trying to find. That was in the 1970s in Birmingham, Alabama, which is why we need to be on our knees about a lot of these issues 
and not say, well, if some of it's false, then all of it's false. We need to have the humility, the frequent failure of Christians to meet biblical ideals of fellowship across racial difference, equal valuing of men and women, welcome for outcasts, love for those with unfulfilled desire, and care for the most marginalized has allowed this mixture of ideas to coalesce under the banner of diversity. But with our heads bowed down to the earth, we'll see that the very ground in which the yard sign stands is unmistakably Christian. When you see a sign like that, realize that every ethical motive behind that sign, even though the people that put it there probably don't know it, is Christian. And you clear away that Christian soil from the sign, and you won't find solid secular rock, you'll find a sinkhole. To our 21st century Western ears, love across racial and cultural difference, the equality of men and women, and the idea that the poor, oppressed, and marginalized can make moral claims on the strong, rich, and powerful sound like basic moral common sense, but they are not. These truths have come to us from Christianity. Rip that foundation out and you won't uncover a better basis for human equality and rights. You'll uncover an abyss that cannot even tell you what a human being is. Like cartoon characters running off a cliff, we may continue a short way before we realize that the ground has gone from underneath our feet, but it has gone. Without Christian beliefs about humanity, the yard sign's claims aren't worth the cardboard on which they are written. So when we pass these signs, I tell my children that in our house, we believe that black lives matter because they matter to Jesus. We don't believe that love is love, but that God is love and that He gives us glimpses of His love through different kinds of relationship. We believe women's rights are human rights because God made us male and female in His image. And for that same reason, we believe that babies in the womb have rights as well. We believe God has a special concern for single mothers, orphans, immigrants, because Scripture tells us so again and again. And we believe that diversity does indeed make us stronger, because Jesus calls people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship Him as one body together. There has never been a religion or a movement as diverse as the church. And it's more diverse today than it's ever been. And it's elitist to think you're talking about the church when you're talking about white American elitists or former elitists. That's me, not uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. Don't want to get her in trouble. As you walk through this book, I hope you'll feel both humbled and empowered. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you'll be ready to join the call to loving arms at the, ends, at the end. If you're not yet following Jesus, or if you couldn't imagine ever wanting to, I hope you'll see the moral soil on which you stand is more Christian than you realize. And I hope you'll start to wonder if the poor, first-century, brown-skinned Jewish man known as Jesus of Nazareth, who lived as a member of an oppressed ethnic group and died at the hands of an imperial regime, might truly be the Savior of the world, the one who showed us what love is by laying his life down for us. Rebecca McLaughlin, The Secular Creed, if you're interested. Who know that you were ransomed from your futile inherited ways with the imperishable, precious blood of Christ. And that any heritage 
that leaves an inheritance that doesn't start with the cross, God says is foolish. That includes everyone in this room, whatever our heritage and ethnicity or anything else. We have a new inheritance that ought to define us, ransomed by precious blood of Christ. Dan Doriani of Covenant Seminary and pastor writes in his commentary, most of Peter's spiritual children began life as pagans who bowed to gods who possessed greater power, but not greater virtue than humans. The popular religions of the day, especially polytheism and emperor worship, demanded loyalty and little more. The leading philosophical or ethical system, Stoicism, Epicurean, Epicureanism, uh, aimed respectively to minimize pain and to realize sustainable pleasures. Therefore, Peter asserts, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This almost sounds insulting, but it's an honest description of their former life. They were ignorant of God and His standards. According to their myths, their gods followed their passions, so the people did the same. If this sounds judgmental, let's recall that the same Lord who said, Do not judge or you too will be judged, also said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And those words point us back to the tension McLaughlin pointed to, that we must realize and live by the fact that God is God and is the judge of all and live by the incredible grace that He's been so gracious to give us. And we must value others while they are still in their sin just as He valued us. That's the part we miss sometimes. Romans 5, 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever rejoiced on that verse? <laughs> that while you were a stinking rebel towards Him, He loved you in spite of yourself. Well, guess what? If He loved you that way, maybe people that put up signs you don't like, He loves too. And maybe you need to love like Jesus loved. Doesn't mean you accept as good, things that are against God's judgment. But it means we care about people, and we're thankful that some people cared about us enough to break through our hard hearts and stubborn, rebellious comments and ignorant things that we threw back in their face. Doriani says, in some ways, all evil desires are similar. All seek to deify man and all violate God's law. Yet the specific forms of evil vary from one time and place to another. Today, Americans typically live together for a season before marriage. We wear clothing that flaunts our wealth or sexuality, and we indulge the material desires that our income allows us to purchase. Since we behave essentially the way others in our social group behave, and since there is always someone who is worse, we are nearly blind to our errors. It's easy to yield to our desires. Guess what? People behave like people. And people without the Spirit of God who don't lean into the Spirit of God behave like people who don't have the Spirit of God. So very briefly as we wrap it all up, the final two verses. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Before creation, God had His plan. The Son of God who is eternal made the plan with the Father and the Spirit for the sufferings and, and the glory. But the last days began with the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And this God, verse 21, who through whom you are believers, 
in him raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So I would urge you, and these are on the outline if you picked up a bulletin, uh, to ponder the bullet points and the other questions if you're in a life group uh, that have been sent out. In what ways does it encourage us to ponder that the Old Testament prophets search to understand what would later become ours in, in Jesus? How does it help us to know how rich and deep are the roots of our faith? How does Peter help you in this text, verses 13 to 21, to understand our motivations to have minds prepared for actions and a hope set fully on the grace that's already ours and yet will be fulfilled with the yet-to-come Christ. And what substitutes do we often lean into instead of setting our faith and hope fully in God? Because that's Peter's last admonition. You know, what do you run to? I could give you my list some other time. I'd be glad to. You know, that, that when I can't sleep, when I'm bugged, you know, what, what do I begin to want to lean on instead of to ponder the inheritance that is mine and, and the riches of who I am? The final day in these last days comes with Christ's return in judgment and fullness of glory. Gird up your minds. Don't be drunk with inheritances other than your inheritance in Christ. May the Lord stir us to that end. Amen.